Man, you're getting killed out there. Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in only three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? Well, you can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing The Little Tramp and The Gammon from the Charlie Chaplin film Modern Times. And uh, before we get into our full discussion, a little bit of a programming note. Todd, this is one of your last 10 episodes of the Protagonist Podcast. It is. I have, um, after a lot, a lot of thought... (laughs) Um, decided to hang up my podcasting guns for, uh, for now. And, um, it's because it's not because I can't stand you guys (laughs) or the fans. I actually love the show and I'm really happy to be going out on a high note. Um, but, uh, uh, I feel like there are some other projects that I want to work on and I just don't have the time. with the podcast on top of all of that other stuff. And uh, so I'm going to say goodbye to the podcast at episode 200. So this is scheduled to be episode 191. So there will be 10 more episodes and uh, episode 200 will be my last. And then uh, I'm sure I'll be back on to talk about other things. In fact, we have already, uh, I for sure will be back in December for uh, Don Quixote and uh, the Christmas episode, if you'll have me. Yes, you have a standing offer to come back on anytime, Todd. <laughs> so minimum, we're going to have you on for the Christmas special because I can't imagine doing that Christmas special with anyone else. Uh, and the as uh, Don Quixote is something we're going to be getting to. And then also, I don't know if we'll have you on or how we'll work it, but you do, you do need to come on at least for the results of the box uh, fantasy box office. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. We'll talk about how to how to work on that, but um, I. Yeah, I'll definitely be around for uh, for the fantasy box office. Uh, and we've results. already actually kind of like it's not on the schedule, but we've talked about things you'll come back for. So this will not yep. be the end of Todd's appearances on the protagonist podcast by any stretch of the imagination. But it will be a different protagonist podcast from episode number two hundred one on. Uh, at the moment, we're not one hundred percent sure what that will look like. <laughs> other than there will likely be more guests uh, coming on for the discussion, and producer Andrew may have a more on mic role <laughs> in uh, the upcoming episodes. Uh, at that point. Um, at the present, we don't have like a new co-host that will be joining us permanently. That may happen at some point. I'm not going to uh, promise uh, the final shape or form of the post-Todd protagonist podcast. Uh, but for now, just know we're going to try and keep it weekly. We'll try and keep the same mission statement of talking about a great character and a great story. And we'll try and have a fun discussion every single week. Awesome. And this week, that discussion is going to be about Modern Times, which is a 1936 film written, directed, and produced by Charlie Chaplin, who also wrote the music and starred in it. Uh, <laughs> Charlie. Well, I guess I, it says wrote the music like he is credited for the music. It was more he uh, he hummed the tunes he wanted to someone who then scored it based on, <laughs> based on or, or he played some stuff on the violin. He played the violin. He would play some of the stuff on the violin, but he did not do the full score. <laughs> that was um, I can't remember the name of the person, but if someone else did the full score, but he was uh, like the inspiration for a lot of the score and he gets credited as music by Charlie Chaplin in this. Uh, Charlie Chaplin in the film plays the little tramp and Paulette Goddard plays Ellen the gammon Peterson. And right before we started recording, we did a little research into the word gammon, which I did not know the meaning of, but Todd, you did. So why don't you share what gammon means? It's a street urchin. It's a, some kid that lives on the street or a gutter snipe, if you will, or a gutter snipe. (laughs) If you prefer the derogatory term. 
Yes. Uh, and the film tells the story of the little tramp who loses his job at a factory and is then mistaken for a union organizer and then thrown in jail. And then just a, a lot of hijinks, a lot of Charlie Chaplin-esque hijinks happen uh, <laughs> uh, after the most famous sequence of the film, which is uh, Charlie Chaplin working in the factory. Uh, yes. So uh, a little bit of trivia about this. Um, this is a mostly silent film, but there are passages with sound. Like very early on, you see someone turn and speak at the camera. Uh, and uh, there are other smaller moments throughout the entire film. And this is the only time you actually hear any vocal work from the little tramp. You hear him sing a nonsense song near the very end. I love that. <laughs> yes. Um, and this film is a 1936 film, which is the very end of what is considered the silent era. Um, the silent or the sound film that changed the industry, the jazz singer, um, that sound film was released in 1927. So almost a decade on from like this kind of signal to Hollywood that sound is coming and sound is going to be the new thing. Um, however, after the jazz singer was released, there was still up through the mid 1930s delays in transitioning technologies, both for making sound films and also distributing sound films, like getting the movie houses to have the right equipment to be able to play sound. So um, in the early or late 20s and early 30s, there's still silent films being produced and even some studios are making um, sound and silent versions of the exact same film and releasing them depending on where it's going to be shown that get the sound version or the or um, the silent version. However, uh, Modern Times is often considered the last film of the silent era, um, that this, this was kind of it. Because um, Chaplin's next film is a full sound film, and there's really no other major releases that are um, considered silent films from here on out. Uh, Except for the artist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because it was in this transitional era, Chaplin actually did write a full script for a talkie version of Modern Times, which would have had the tramp speaking throughout. Um, but he decided that that would ruin the character of the little tramp. So he switched over to this mostly silent film version that we have. And he doesn't consider the gibberish song to be breaking the character of the tramp because he's not really speaking. <laughs> it's just <laughs> gibberish. <laughs> Um, at least part of the inspiration for the film Modern Times was a conversation that Charlie Chaplin had with Mahatma Gandhi, where Gandhi talked about concerns that he had with um, technolo technological advancements, uh, leaving people behind and not um, caring about how people were treated as technology became more common in the workplace. If you're going to be inspired by something, wow. <laughs> you know, a conversation with Gandhi. <laughs> when did they have the opportunity to just talk? Uh, it, I'm sure it would have been, uh, Ch Chaplin traveled, um, with oh. premieres of his movies often, um, when he was, when he was a major world star, I'm sure it would have been on one of those trips. Had not ever thought of them as contemporaries. Yeah. It's one of those, uh, this, this happens not, it, it, it's not uncommon to find out that, oh, those are were at the same time. And it's like, we just have segmented, um, mm -hmm. where they exist in our mental strata of the timeline. Yeah. That way it can be jarring. Um. Modern Times has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was added to the National Film Registry in 1989. <laughs> um, uh, this is time for one of our listeners' favorite things. Joe tries to pronounce French. Uh, French philosophers <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and Maurice Merleau-Ponty named their journal Les Temps Modernes after this film. Um, so that's just French for Modern Times, and it was in honor of this Chaplin film. Uh, Charlie Chaplin first played Little Tramp in 1914. It was his most common character that he played. Uh, and Modern Times is the Tramp's last appearance. And there were several dozen appearances of the Tramp, though I could not find quickly how many times he played the Little Tramp on film. Everyone just says dozens. <laughs> so um, he played it a lot. Uh, in Chaplin's next film after Modern Times, uh, which is the satire of Hitler called The Great Dictator, there's a character Chaplin plays that has a lot of visual similarities with the Tramp. Uh, but that film is an all talky, and Chaplin has said that the character is not the Tramp. Uh, the character is referred to in the film as the Jewish barber. Um, and so the fact that he has a consistent job, first of all, means it's not the Tramp. Because <laughs> one of the hallmarks of the Tramp is not having a job. Uh, and it was more, the visual style was actually meant to be a, uh, he, Chaplin's playing a dual role of Hitler and, um, the Jewish barber, barber. And it was, I mean, obviously Hitler has some appearance similarities to the tramp and, <laughs> but it was meant to be, uh, a play off of the dictator uh, and the Jewish barber, not his most famous character, the little tramp, but the mustache really threw audiences who assumed this was another role of the little tramp. 
1959, Chaplin said to a reviewer, though, that he was wrong to have abandoned the Tramp because he thinks there was room for him in the Atomic Age. And um, just uh, now there's going to be a long chunk of trivia about Chaplin because I think it's worth noting all these things. Um, Chaplin's films are often noted for their social conscience and the way that he addresses issues of poverty. Um, and the workforce and things. Uh, and that was quite deliberate based on his own personal biography. Chaplin was born in England and his father was never a part of his family's life. He never knew his father. His mother was committed to an asylum uh, when he was a teenager. But even before that, Chaplin had started working in a workhouse when he was only nine years old. Uh, Chaplin eventually ended up performing at music halls and, and got discovered and signed to a talent agency uh, in his teenage years. And that talent agency took him to America um, to kind of try out for silent films. And he signed with Keystone Studios. Um, and in one of those early Keystone Studios silent films, he puts on a costume that becomes the little tramp and little tramp makes Chaplin the biggest star of the silent era. Uh, but in the 1940s, a post silent era, his personal and professional life were plagued by scandal in his personal life. Chaplin, well, he was married four times in his life. <laughs> um, and this is an era of the kind of studio star system and super fans, you know, trying to find out everything about the personal lives of celebrities. Certainly we've abandoned that right. As yeah. our society has. <laughs> Thank goodness has we matured. moved beyond that era. <laughs> um, but uh, as he was ending his third marriage, uh, there he was hit with a paternity suit from a woman who claimed to have had an affair with him. And while some biographers think the affair probably did happen, it is almost universally said that the paternity suit had no merit uh, and blood tests that proved that it was false were not admitted into court, partially because the FBI was leaning on uh, the court to give Chaplin a hard time uh, because the FBI was concerned, concerned he was a communist <laughs> and uh, did not like the social messages portrayed in the films. Uh, and um, the, the FBI actually made sure that there was a lot of negative press about Chaplin. Uh, and then Chaplin also didn't help his own cause when at age 54, he married an 18 year old <laughs> named Una O'Neill, daughter of Eugene O'Neill, a uh, prize winning playwright. Uh, but that age gap, raised some eyebrows the 54 to 18 wow. however most of his other marriages only lasted three years and uh una o'neill and chaplin remained married for 33 years until chaplin passed away uh so but but you know even though that was his most successful marriage the age gap did not help his public perception that was a bit scandal plagued at that time uh and during the latter 40s um chaplin did get subpoenaed to appear before huac uh, though he never actually testified, but he was directly accused by McCarthy of being a communist and Chaplin openly condemned the Hollywood blacklist and the trials of suspected communists. And when Chaplin went to London for the premiere of his film Limelight, uh, which is a very biographical film about working in vaudeville and transitioning to film and then transitioning to sound. Um, uh, but when he went to London for the premiere, the U.S. Attorney General revoked Chaplin's re-entry permit and said that he could only be allowed back in the U.S. if he had interviews about his moral and political views. Um, and Chaplin said, no, <laughs> I'm not jumping through your hoops. And he did not come back to the United States uh, again until 1972 when he, uh, he was to receive an honorary achievement award at the Oscars, kind of a lifetime achievement award. And he almost said no to that, but he eventually got talked into coming back to the U.S. And when he appeared on stage, there was a 12 minute standing ovation for him, which is the longest in Oscars history. <laughs> Uh, in 1975, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, and he died in 1977 after he had suffered a series of strokes and declining health. And then the last bit of trivia about Chaplin, one of the stranger things that I know about him. It, he died in 1977. In 1978, there's some trivia about him because his body was dug up and held ransom. <laughs> held for ransom. Uh, the, uh, the grave robbers were demanding ransom from uh, his widow. Uh, Una O'Neill Chaplin. Uh, however, the police worked it out pretty quickly <laughs> and got the body back. The ransom was not paid. Uh, like this was a very public thing, and there was a lot of manpower put into solving this. And his body was um, recovered and then buried with uh, his around his coffin. They put reinforced concrete all around, so no one could dig down to his actual coffin again and try this uh, stunt again. Wow! So that's my Chaplin trivia and my modern times trivia. That's. <laughs> I'm uh I'm like dumbfounded. <laughs> Which part? <laughs> All of it. There's All a lot to digest there. 
Oh, uh, well, uh, also one other thing uh, I found, uh, I think it was on the Wikipedia page, talking about his, uh, how like he was the biggest star in the entire world and in American entertainment when he was the little tramp in the 1920s and early 30s to the point where um, he is so reviled both by the government and by the public, like the public turned on him, his latter sound films, uh, particularly after The Great Dictator, which ends with uh, like a five minute monologue to the audience appeal, you know, um, like making a political appeal uh, and an anti-fascist appeal, which, you know, definitely suited the times, but people felt he was getting too political. And then when he was aligned, uh, at least in the government's eyes and therefore the public's eyes uh, with the communist party after that, like his, he became so unpopular in the U S um, someone said that that was like the greatest fall of stardom in the history of the entertainment industry. I would just add the caveat. There are new contenders every year now, particularly <laughs> in the post me too movement for a loss of popularity yeah. uh, for, for different reasons now than what Chaplin experienced in his day. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, uh, before we move on to Todd's long summary, we just want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office, which is so much more competitive than I thought it would be after I had Black Panther and <laughs> Avengers at the start of the year. Incredibles 2 really did you a big favor in that in that um all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and now on to the full spoiler discussion of modern times okay uh this one is not too long um we've had a couple long summaries lately i'm gonna uh i'll just start by saying there's nothing that i can say that would be even a thousandth part as funny as watching Chaplin be Chaplin. Uh, so, um, you know, take the, take the summary with a grain of salt, but uh, it starts with a title card that says modern times, a story of industry of individual enterprise, humanity crusading in the pursuit of happiness. And then we see an image of actual sheep. And then we see people going like sheep uh, to work in a factory. And the president of the Electro Steel Corps, uh, Corp watches his workers on a big screen. And then he orders a guy to speed up production. And now we see Chaplin. So uh, I'll, I'll just call him Chaplin. He is the little tramp uh, in, in this film. But we see Chaplin. He's working on an assembly line, but he gets distracted by a fly and he can't focus. And it's very funny as he has to race down the assembly line to try to catch up to the pieces that keep moving past him. And the president orders even more speed. And Chaplin, uh, he clocks out. And he goes in the bathroom to smoke. But the president spies on him with his big, uh, his big screen. And tells him Just to think go back a to work. Skype screen. <laughs> yeah, so he does. Um, and then some guys bring in uh, the Billows feeding machine uh, to show the president. And it's this giant contraption that has all of these um, plates, and uh, there's a corn feeder uh, and uh, soup and uh, automated forks and things. And so the idea is that the uh, the worker will be able to stay right at his um, his assembly line on the on the conveyor belt. And this machine will just come and feed him while he continues to work. So uh, they decide uh, it's lunchtime and uh, Chaplin is chosen to test the machine. And at first things go okay, but quickly uh, the machine speeds up too fast and then it makes a mess of him. And the president refuses to buy it because he says it's not practical. That scene with the with the the feeding machine is, I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah, my... Uh... <laughs> My daughter came in around that point and she just stayed and was cracking up so much. My kids sequence. love this movie today. Yeah. Uh, so if you think, I mean, I'll just say, if you think that your kids are not going to enjoy a, a silent film, this may be the one to show them. <laughs> it's very <laughs> funny. And my six-year-old was enthralled and just snuggled up next to me and watched the whole thing and was laughing at all the right parts. Uh, so, Yeah. Okay, uh, the machine is not practical. So time marches on into the late afternoon and Chaplin's line moves faster and faster and he can't keep up and eventually he falls into the machine and gets sucked through it and he literally kind of becomes part of the gears and then he gets spit back out but uh, he goes crazy and he has this this wrench and he starts uh, trying to um, tighten anything that he sees that looks like a bolt. And then he sees uh, the secretary and she has these big buttons on the back of her skirt and they kind of look like bolts. And so he starts chasing her, uh, you know, like maybe he wants to tighten the 
the buttons on the back of her skirt. And then they go outside and they, <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> they see this large woman with these great big buttons on her chest. <laughs> and he sees her and he kind of goes up to her. And then a cop comes and chases him back into the factory. Um, and so he runs into the factory and he just starts pulling every lever that he can. And then he starts dancing around and squirting people with an oil can. And then he's taken to the hospital and cured of his craziness. But now he has no job. So the doctor tells him to avoid excitement. And he's released from the mental hospital. Um, and now he's walking down the street and he sees a flag fall off a truck. And he picks it up and he starts to kind of walk down the street holding the flag like he's chasing the truck that the thing has fallen off of. And this whole line of communist protesters uh, come out behind him. And they're they're walking behind him, and it looks like he's the leader, and so he's arrested. Uh, and now we meet the gammon, who is a child of the waterfront who refuses to go hungry, and she is um, she's stealing bananas from a boat, and then she gets chased around the docks, and she's pretty good. Um, I love uh, this actress in this film. She is, um, I, I just think she's amazing. Uh, so she gets uh, chased around the docks, and then she takes the bananas home to her little motherless sisters and her unemployed and depressed father, and she is uh, sweet and spunky and pretty. And then meanwhile, Chaplin is being held as a communist leader in jail, and his cellmate does, <laughs> does cross-stitch, um, and the two do not get along with each other at all. And at lunch, the cellmate won't let Chaplin have any bread. Um, and we see this funny uh, chaplain trying to get bread and the, the guy not letting him. Then the guards come to look for drugs, um, cocaine, which chaplain's neighbor hides in the salt shaker. <laughs> and then uh, chaplain shakes the salt onto his food and it makes him high. And he goes like totally crazy. They have to march out of the cafeteria and he's like marching in circles. And um, his physical comedy is just... Um, without equal i mean he's just there's nobody like like him um and then he he kind of wanders out of the hall into the prisoner yard and he misses getting put in his cell and just at this time some prisoners uh are they're planning an escape from the jail and uh chaplain uh, uh still sort of semi um high he knocks them out and he saves the jail uh, and so, um, uh, meanwhile, outside there's trouble with, uh, with the unemployed people and, uh, there are shots fired and someone is, is, uh, hurt, uh, or shot. And, um, the gammon goes to see who it is and it's her father and he's dead. And so the law takes charge of these orphans and they take her little sisters, but the gammon escapes. And back in the jail, chaplain is now in this nice, comfortable cell that they don't ever lock. And the guards come in and chat with him. And a church minister and his wife come to visit the jail. And Chaplin's out in the waiting room sitting. And the, the minister's wife sits next to him. And she looks like this really serious lady. And then they start drinking tea. Or uh, I think it's tea. And her stomach starts to growl. And then Chaplin's stomach starts to growl. And uh, it's way funnier <laughs> than it sounds. Um, <laughs> now, now Chaplin is set free. Uh, from jail but he actually doesn't want to leave because he's so comfortable in the in the jail um, but the warden gives him a letter of recommendation so he goes and gets a job in a shipyard and he's sent to find a, a, a piece of wood that's shaped like a wedge and he finds a piece of wood shaped like a wedge um, and it's actually holding this giant boat in place uh, and so he knocks it loose and it sends the boat down the ramp into the ocean and uh, basically he just wants to go back to jail because <laughs> that was the best place for him uh, and now the gammon steals some bread, and in her escape, she runs right into Chaplin, and he tells the police uh, that it was him who stole the bread so that he can go back to jail. He's like, no, I, take me. I, I was the one who stole it. Then a lady tells the baker that it was really Chaplin, uh, that it was really the gammon. And so they leave him alone, and they go after her to arrest her. And uh, Chaplin goes to this cafeteria, and he buys this huge meal. I mean, he orders a huge meal and then he doesn't pay for it so he can get arrested, which finally happens. So they put him in the paddy wagon and then the gammon gets put in there and she's sad and, and she cries and he gives her a hanky and then they somehow fall out of the paddy wagon. This was, I was like, I don't really understand why they fall out of the paddy wagon, but they do. And then he tells her to escape and so they run. she runs away, but she beckons for him to come with her and uh, so he does. And then they start making googly eyes at each other and they... They sit on this. They, they walk to a nice part of town. And they, Side note, Chaplin is the king of googly eyes. Oh, yeah. What he does with his eyebrows, I don't understand. <laughs> how, 
how he does it. <laughs> Seems like it's biologically impossible, but yet somehow he manages it. So they're sitting on the kind of a lawn outside of this, uh, not like a fancy house, but sort of just a just a nice house. Um, and then uh, they start to think what it would be like to live in a home like that. And we get this kind of dream sequence of him arriving home and he plucks an orange from an orange tree that's basically growing in the in the living room. And then he calls for uh, a cow and um, and he milks the cow like just right out the, the back door of the kitchen and he's eating grapes from the porch and uh and then we we cut back to to him telling it looks like he's been telling the gammon uh this this sort of describing this scene to her and it's making her hungry and so he promises to get her a home even if he has to work for it <laughs> and uh now there has been an accident at a department store and the night watchman has broken his leg so chaplain shows his letter of recommendation from the prison and and he's given the job so after closing, Chaplin sneaks the gammon in and he feeds her cake. And then they go up to the fourth floor, which is the toy department, and they put on roller skates and he puts on a blindfold and skates dangerously close to this unprotected balcony. And it is amazing. It's so good. Um, and then have you seen how they made that scene? I assumed it was a flat painting on the floor. It is. It it's a flat okay. painting on the floor, but it looks so good. Oh, it does. And he, he he never crosses over to the point where you're like, sure, that it's a flat painting on the floor. It's um, amazing. Yeah. My kids were totally like, oh, my gosh, he's going to fall. Uh, it's, it's I don't really know how good. many takes they had to do because he's, he's roller skating blindfolded and like going right to the edge. And I'm sure there must be takes where he went over the edge and they couldn't use yeah. that footage. But they got a lot of good takes of him like riding the wheels so close to what looks like the edge of this, uh, you know, this this broken balcony where he'd fall down stories of floors, he's you good. know, within the. He's yeah. good on those roller uh -huh. skates. Uh, so then and then the gammon comes and stops him. They go up to the fifth floor, which is the bedroom display, and she wraps up in furs and admires the beautiful beds. And then he tucks her in and tells her he'll wake her up before opening. And then some robbers come into the store and he still has his skates on. <laughs> they tell him to freeze, but he can't because he's wearing roller skates. Uh, and then they hold him at gunpoint while the gammon sleeps. Um, but uh, there are shots fired at, at one point. So he he's facing barrels that are full of alcoholic beverages. And the shots are fired, and so the 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 alcohol is like showering down onto him, and he ends up drinking a bunch of it. So he gets really drunk, and uh, and then one of the robbers recognizes Chaplin from the factory, and they tell him they aren't bad; they're just hungry. And then they all cry and drink together. And in the morning, the gammon wakes up, and she runs out of the store. And Chaplin gets in trouble for sleeping on the job, and then so he goes to jail again. And then 10 days later, they let him go, and the gammon is waiting for him, and they embrace, and she tells him she has found a home for them. It's a shack out by, out, out by the water, and when he goes in the, in the shack, everything falls apart, and it's great. This is another one of my favorite scenes uh, in this film. And then at night, they sleep, and in the morning, he wakes up to go for a swim. <laughs> he dives into the water, and it's like one <laughs> foot deep. <laughs> it's amazing. Um and uh, and she's been preparing this really nice breakfast um, of stolen food, <laughs> and he he kind of he kind of shakes you know wags his finger at her about about stealing food, and she sort of winks at him like yeah uh, okay whatever. Um, and then the house continues to fall apart, and he reads in the paper that the factories are reopening and hiring, and so work at last. He rushes off to tell her now we will get a real home. So he gets hired as an assistant to the mechanic who is trying to get the old machinery back in working order. And, uh, of course, he messes things up again, and he accidentally smashes the, the mechanic's watch. Um, and then Chaplin sets a toolbox down on some gears, and they all get smashed. And then the mechanic gets stuck in the gears. And lunchtime comes. Chaplin's still trying to get the, the, the mechanic out of the gears, um, and his head's just sort of poking out. Uh, out from the side of this giant machine and uh, lunch but lunchtime comes and they shut down all the machines at lunchtime so the guy's just stuck there so chaplain goes ahead and takes his break and then um, in a parallel to the early billows feeding machine episode uh, chaplain feeds the mechanic whose head is sticking out of the of, of the machine um and then lunchtime ends and he is able to finally get the mechanic out of the gears and then a guy comes and says hey we're all on strike so they all leave the factory um, and Chaplin uh, accidentally steps on a board that catapults a brick that hits a cop, and so he gets thrown in jail again. Uh, and a week passes, and the gammon is dancing in the street, and some men hire her to dance in their cafe, and she's a big hit. 
And then another week passes, and now the gammon, dressed in nice clothes, goes and picks up Chaplin when he gets out of jail, and she says she has a job for him. Uh, and the cafe, so they go to the cafe, and the cafe owner asks him if he can wait on a table, and he says yes, and he asks him if he can sing, and he says yes. And so the owner uh, agrees to give him a trial. So meanwhile, the police have put out a warrant for the arrest of the gammon for vagrancy. And then that night, Chaplin is waiting tables, and there's a client who's mad because he's waiting, been waiting for an hour for his roast duck. And uh, Chaplin goes to get the duck, um, and then he tries to make his way back to the table, but he can't because there's all these dancers. And so you see him getting sort of swept, uh, swept around um, by these dancers. And again, it's much funnier than uh, than it sounds when I'm describing it. And uh, and then there are these drunk football players, and they start playing football with the roasted duck. Uh, and and then and then it's time for Chaplin to sing. So the gammon wants to rehearse with him. Uh, but Chaplin says he he forgot the words. So she writes the words um, on his cuff. And then he goes out to sing. And he just, his dancing is something to behold. But the very first dance move that he does, he flings his arms out and both of his cuffs just fly off of his hands. So he doesn't have the words to the song. And so he's really nervous about this, and um, and the gamut, he kind of looks over at the gamut, she's in the wings, and she says, just go ahead and sing, don't mind the words. So then he just starts singing this um, nonsense, kind of French and sort of a French and Italian sounding words, but it doesn't mean anything, and and he does this amazing dance and sings this nonsense, and it's a huge hit. The owner loves it so much that he gives Chaplin a steady job. But then the police come and they arrest the gammon because they have this warrant for her and the owner tries to protest and then Chaplin and the gammon run away. And Dawn finds them resting on the side of a lonely dirt road and she cries and asks, what's the use of trying? And he tells her, buck up, never say die, we'll get along. And this fires her up and so they stand up and he reminds her to smile and they walk off down the road at the end. And that's the end of the tramp walking off into the sunset. With the gammon, but it's dawn, so he's not actually walking into the sunset. He's oh yes, into yeah, the <laughs> the sunrise. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so that's it. Good summary, Todd. And uh, again, listeners, even if you can't go watch the whole movie, at least go look on YouTube. Just put in Chaplin factory sequence for when he goes through all the gears. It is pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to me, the bit, the best, the best bits of this film are the. Um, the the feeding machine Mm -hmm. and i mean that whole factory sequence is great but the feeding yeah the whole factory sequence from the feeding machine to going down and then coming out and trying to use the the wrenches on everything yep so there's that one the roller skating sequence is i i think top notch uh and the 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 shack when the shack is falling Mm -hmm. apart that's really good and the dance at the end yeah, I, I sign off on every single one of those. So as... if, you, if you don't want to spend an hour and a half on maybe YouTube, because this may or may not be there, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then uh, just look up any of those scenes and um, and just enjoy. And, uh, and really, give this a shot with your kids. I mean, I think, I don't know, I've had college students before that are like, a silent film? You've got to be kidding me. This is so boring. And I can show this to my six-year-old and he's dying. Like, this is really funny. And it's funny for, I mean, <laughs> I, I was reading this book today. It was talking about um, uh, objective versus subjective. And it was saying that something is objective if, it, if it's basically, if it holds true for all rational humans. And so I'm going to say this is objectively funny. Like, if you don't <laughs> find Chaplin funny, then you are not a rational human being. Yes. He's I mean even even today like uh, Cha- Chaplin and the Little Tramp is so iconic and emblematic of the silent era. Like I, I think even if you don't watch silent films it, it's so culturally pervasive the idea of the tramp is what comes to mind when you say silent films. Yes. I mean he was used uh like I know Animaniacs had like Tramp Little Tramp references mm-hmm. in you know a kids cartoon in the 90s that how many kids were watching silent films i don't know <laughs> but but he still remains a cultural touchstone for that era and that kind of comedy yeah well, i think i, I just oh, i think we have so little I, I so little experience so many people have so little experience with these films and um i mean chaplin made a lot of films but there are a few of them that are i mean i would consider like sort of the greats this is one of them 
I haven't seen all of his films, but the ones that I have seen that I like without hesitation would recommend to any modern viewer, even a modern viewer with kids and just say, you could sit down and watch this. I think you're really going to like it. I would say modern times, the kid and city lights are three. Gold Rush exceptional too, I would films. say. Oh, gold, gold Rush, Rush is well. really good too. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's a kind of comedy that we're not used to seeing. Um, but it, uh, it just, it stands up so well. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. And, and um, I, I think also we, we get this idea of what the silent era is, but there were comedians who were doing very different things. Uh, Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton are the kind of the, and Charlie Chaplin, those are kind of like the big three for the silent era, but you watch them and the way they are making you laugh without, set up joke punchline, you know, kind of comedy. Uh-huh. It's, it's very different <laughs> for, for each of those three comedians. Like they have a different physicality uh, to them. Um, I, I think I like Buster Keaton a, a little bit more. Just his stone face cracks me up so much uh, versus some of the more manicness of Charlie Chaplin. But uh, it's like one a and one B not like, Oh, miles <laughs> ahead. <laughs> <There>. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen just only a little bit of Buster Keaton and Buster Keaton is uh, like mesmerizing it's just it's mind-blowing the stunts that he does um and the the classic keaton scene is where he walks out of the building and the building falls down and it, the window falls right on top of him and so he he's left standing and the building has fallen down around him i don't know how to explain that very well but um <laughs> It's- well, just think the uh, bit from the first Pirates of the Caribbean when Captain Jack Sparrow steps in front of the falling mast and it, the rigging all falls down around him. That was just borrowed straight from Buster Keaton. Yeah. And uh, to me, there's something the, the the thing about Buster Keaton is just the um, it's kind of like Jackie Chan where you're watching it and you know that this is a guy doing this thing and it just is astounding. Um, I haven't seen enough Keaton to to speak to like the um the emotion of a buster Keaton that's what i was about to say yeah i I think the themes of chaplin are stronger than the themes of buster keaton i just even love the there's so much heart and so much like beauty like meaning in Mm -hmm. uh in in chaplin's films I totally agree. Like I am more uh, in awe of some of the comic setups for Buster Keaton. Uh, like there's a, one of his great films is called Steamboat Bill Jr. And there's a tornado at the end. And like this whole city gets swept away and he's getting blown sideways by the wind. And basically the whole time you're like, how did they film this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like buildings are getting blown by and just barely missing him. And he's on a bed that's getting blown all around by this tornado wind. And he's literally like holding onto a flagpole sideways and, and you see everything going on. And, and like just the, the thought process of like, how was this made in 1920? it was in the 1920s that way yeah. like how, how do they do this um but i think there is a stronger thematic depth to uh, a lot of chaplin and particularly modern times like there's a reason this is the classic chaplin film it's because you watch it and you're going to laugh out loud at some of these sequences all the ones that you mentioned are worth like we said just going and watching uh but then there's so much that's being said about the modern times when the film was made yeah. uh, you know this this capturing uh the issues of 1936 america for example, like uh, the factory work, obviously, like the dehumanization of the industrial revolution right. and factory work versus agrarian work. Um, that's something that has been commented on a lot. But I was like going and researching, uh, you know, because there's the strike of the workers in this film in 1936. And in my research, I, I was just double checking like when unions were forming and what the work work week was and everything. And it's in 1937 that the, uh, the eight hour workday becomes <laughs> law, like for, for what full-time work is going to be um, before that. It, like there were these movements and all these changes, like in the 1800s, there was one social movement that was like a workday of six to six. Like that was the big goal yeah. to make human life, you know, the life of the workers more palatable. We're going to work six to six with a breakfast break and a, and a lunch break. And that's going to be, you know, what was worth fighting for. Uh, and, and the unions that we're seeing at this point would have been, uh, marching for, for eight hour days, which is what, you know, we, we settle on eventually. Um, and the next year it gets passed. But so a lot of the issues it's, you know, they, he's being very topical (laughs) in what he's addressing. Yeah, I'm 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 thinking over that um, piece of trivia that you said that this this film came out of a conversation with Gandhi. Um, And there is. uh, I mean, for 
for a film that I mean, when you think of Gandhi, you don't think of factories, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, but there's there's something in the in the emotions that are uh, evoked from this film mm-hmm. that uh, reminds me of of the, uh, uh, something very like Gandhi esque. And uh, I mean, this is not certainly the only film that's dealing with these issues. Like I sometimes show the factory scene of this and a very famous factory film from the silent film Metropolis Uh um, back to back to talk about issues of modernization uh, with, with my students and industrialization in the Metropolis. What was that? The clocks. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, this film's called Modern Times. It opens up on the clock and there's clocks throughout this entire thing. Uh, but I show the the factory sequence where Chaplin goes in and like literally is part of the gears and and he comes out and he's not human anymore. Like he's just the worker doing the motion with the wrenches and that's all he is anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene in Metropolis, which is an iconic sci-fi a German expressionist film from 1927, I want to say it was. So about a decade before um, this one. And there's a sequence where this very upper class, you know, never works with his hands a day in his life character has gone and explored like the lower depths of the city where all the factories are. And he sees the workers marching in uh, and it looks just a lot like um, the chaplain at the beginning of modern times, just the sheep and then the workers like milling into the factory to kind of drive home that they're, they, they're less than human working in the factory. And the workers like march in in this very regimented robotic way in Metropolis. And there's this scene where um, the factory, one of the machines in the factory explodes and all these bodies go flying and this upper class character who has never understood the way the majority of the people are living is thrown back in the explosion and he wakes up in this daze and he has this vision of like an ancient central american uh uh, god with uh human sacrifices being loaded and fed into uh into this this god's mouth like this um stone uh face of a god and it's the workers marching up as human sacrifice and being whipped into this human sacrifice in the same way that the workers just marched into the factory. And then it fa- the vision fades and it goes back to the, the giant machine that's somewhat on fire, but all the bodies are still strewn about from this explosion that just happened. Um, and so this idea of the tension between industrialization and dehumanization was uh-huh. definitely something that was being played with in, in other films at the time. Uh, but I, I think Chaplin presents it in a way that... Um, You know, it could smooth, you know, the spoonful of sugar of the comedy of the little tramp, but all of that theme is still there, uh, you know, present and and the concerns are still being explored in modern times. Kind of reminds me of um, Life is Beautiful, which is Mm -hmm. a a comedy about the Holocaust. And you think, how could you make a a comedy about concentration camps? (laughs) And yet um, there's something in the, I don't know, like there's, there's something uh in in the playful nature of it um that rather than kind of taking you out of it it allows you to kind of stay there longer and and think about it i don't know i i I think it's really and it increases the empathy you're feeling yeah like like your emotions are all heightened where you can get numbed to some holocaust stories um i actually just showed students life is beautiful last week i'm teaching a a course where mouse is the main text we're talking about but Uh we we also watched Life is Beautiful and read uh, The Book Thief to talk about other ways that the Holocaust gets engaged with in, in popular narratives. Sure. Um, and yeah, there is it's just such a different reaction that you have in all three of those texts. Um, and they're all dealing with a, a, a similar amount of like this dehumanization, the inhumanity uh, with which humans can get treated uh, in society. Uh, but they're all approaching it with different tones and methods and similar to like Metropolis versus modern times, similar themes, but just very different methods that are, and uh, styles that are being used to explore it. Mm. Uh, I want to talk for a minute about, um, about the gammon. Mm-hmm. I, I think Paulette Goddard is really good. <laughs> In this she's an amazing actress and she's stunning too <laughs> she is like uh, um you just you want to watch her right like she's um she's she has a presence cap- she's, she's commanding the screen yeah she yeah. commands the screen and um there's like when she's when she's jumping around on top of the boats she's she's good you know like she could do the physical the physical stuff um but the the thing that the uh, the 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 phrase that came into my mind was there's a Portuguese phrase called dar um jeito, and um, it means 
uh, it kind of means something like to find a way. Like you just sort of find a way. And it comes from like, um, comes out of like the favelas and, you know, really, uh, really poor areas of Brazil and people just kind of finding a way to survive. And they're like, oh, we just, you know, right? Like you, you just, you'll find a way. And, and that's what Brazilians are good at. They're good at just, um, life is hard. You don't have the resources that you, <laughs> that, that you think, uh, would be necessary for survival. And yet you just, you find a way somehow. And that I think that, um, that the gammon really portrays that spirit. And I think that that's, um, it's a really human thing. And so we see the dehumanization in the factory. And then we see this very, um, I mean, I think she embodies a lot of kind of the best of humanity in that um, she's smart and she's resourceful and she just kind of finds a way to make stuff happen. She's also um, kind. The first time we meet her, she's throwing all the bananas to the other uh, street urchin kids uh, that she's stealing Gutter from. Gutter snipes, Todd. Yeah. I think that's the right term. <laughs> um <laughs> I just love the phrase gutter snipes, listeners. Uh, we, when I was double checking the meaning of the gammon, that was one of the uh, synonyms, and I cannot forget the word gutter snipe now. <laughs> It'll show up in one of your stories, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, I, I, I think it's a cool um, uh, contrast between the dehumanization of the factory and then this, um, the, her just humanity. And I think there's an interesting um, arc where uh, we see the little tramp like decides prison is where it's at. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get my food every day. And like he gives up on life. Like he's he's not planning on living a, a life anymore, even such as it was, you know, as dehumanized as it was in the factory. He's just going to go be a prisoner like that's going to be his career, <laughs> career criminal. But really career prisoner is what he's looking for. Um, and. She is, as we, as you said, like she's the one that's finding the way she's uh, surviving um, and she gets a taste of something even better, right? When she finds success and thinks that uh, the little tramp is going to find success working um, and, you know, serving, serving the drinks and, and singing. Uh, and then, then when that gets taken away, like she almost gives up, right? She's, she's ready to give up. And then the, the tramp has been uh, inspired by her and like gives that inspiration back to her. What's the last title card again? What's the exact quote that, uh, you know, for, for he viewers says, who have who seen the little tramp for, for dozens of films, this is the last statement of the little tramp to a downtrodden America. That's still struggling through the great depression. Yeah, this is he, the final he says, words. Buck up, never say die. We'll get along. And then she stands up and she's, um, she's still sad. And then he points to, to her to smile, right? So he does this, you know, the thing when you do when you point at the corners of your mouth to smile, and then they walk off down the road together. And it's just, um, I think it's really beautiful. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I mean, I think technology and and progress is a, I think it's a complicated thing. I think it's more complicated than than sometimes we want to give it credit for, uh, because. Um, it's easy for us to point at the factories and say, oh, it's so dehumanizing and it's horrible, but like none of us are, you know, giving up the stuff that comes out of factories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Like modern life is built upon the products from factories. Yeah. And that, and we have a complicated relationship with it and, and, and we should have, we should feel like we have a complicated relationship with it. Like we, sh our eyes should be open to the fact that, um, that there are uh, casualties on the, <laughs> uh, on the way, and we and we, I just I think it's important to not forget that. Um, but but this the the fact that you can have this film where you're made aware of that, you see the dehumanization of it, um, and it becomes just really clear. I mean, he, he ends up going to a mental hospital, right? Like his mother, yeah. like his own mother did, um, because of what's go, you know the, what's going on to him in this in this factory uh and yet the film ends with this uh you know buck up and never say die and let's smile and and find a way and yeah and it's something that i i think he, you're right in saying that it's something that he learned from her and uh is so often the case in relationships they help you know there's it's a seesaw and that's why <laughs> that's why we work together because somebody's got to have our back 
Yeah. Sometimes my wife and I, uh, like when there's high tension and frustration with, we have four young kids. There, there are moments where everyone is kind of on edge. If one of the parents like goes over the edge first and is like, clearly can't handle it anymore. The other one has to be the one to handle it now. <laughs> like yeah. even if, if like, uh, you know, one minute before one, we were both teetering on the edge. Once one's over the edge, it's like, okay, you might get, go take a moment. And the other one has to like calm down. Cause that's what you have to do. Like, yeah, like you said, with the relationship, it's a teeter-totter. Um, I, I like that metaphor for it. Yeah, and the worst, the worst thing that can happen in a relationship is when you're both down at the same time. And yeah. that, thankfully, that has not happened very often in, in my relationship with my wife. But there have been times, like, when um, we got, it just stands out in my mind, we got the flu so bad as a whole family. Uh, this would have been probably six years ago or five or six years ago. And we were, I mean, it was the real live full on, like for a month, we could not function. And I remember just laying on the couch and thinking, I can't do anything. I need, I need help, right? Like I need my wing woman and then look up and see her and she's lying on the other couch and she's just in the same situation (laughs) and stare at each other and be like, Oh no, there's nobody here. (laughs) Like I just have to do this right now. It's so hard. Uh, I just read this, um, Javier Marias novel. So he's a a Spanish writer and it's called Corazón Tan Blanco. So, uh, heart so white and, um, heart so white is a quote from Macbeth where Lady Macbeth is, um, they're washing the blood off of their hands. And she says to to Macbeth, um, I see that you, my hands are the same color of yours, but I'm ashamed uh, to have a heart so white. And then there's this kind of debate among critics as or, or scholars as to what that means, because it's kind of an enigmatic phrase in the, in the in the story. But the 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 novel, it, one of the one of the themes that the novel explores is uh, marriage specifically, and how um, in a marriage. Like the greatest thing about marriage is that there's always somebody to watch your back. Um, And the worst thing about marriage is that if that person turns on you, then it's the worst thing that can happen. Uh, And, you know, in this one, there's actually, you know, murder. Uh, So the worst thing that can happen is your spouse kills you. The best thing that can happen is that there's somebody always there, like watching your back. And, um, and I, I love to, to watch uh, Chaplin and the, the tramp and the gammon. Uh, watching each other's back and helping each other out. She gets the job and she goes to find him and say, Hey, I've got this job for him. And um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. Like this, uh, like when you think of the tramp or the, the little tramp, the, the chaplain character, like if you think of a relationship, often it's the kid, right. From, uh-huh. from the kid his one of his other most iconic films, but I, I really like where this one ends and particularly ends for the tramp where, uh, like if you, if you were going to try and like define Chaplin's little tramp, it would be, you know, down on his luck, but always a little bit of hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of it. Like, like things are never working out, but he kind of always thinks they may work <laughs> out. Um, and the, for this film to provide um, this closure on this character of, you know, him, the little tramp and the gammon are going to go find out how it all works out together. Um, uh, that I think is a fantastic, you know, end statement. And also that, you know, the, the final title card, you know, basically things are going to work out for that to be released in, uh, you know, America that had grown up with the little tramp Mm -hmm. since the 1920s and is still in the midst of the great depression in 1936. I think that's a pretty, um, again, topical, (laughs) um, idea, uh, like get up and let's just keep going. Yeah, it's so interesting to see him lose his hope. I mean, you have to be in a pretty low place to be constantly committing crimes. I mean, he's he's purposely committing crimes so that he'll get thrown in, in jail. Like, yeah, the crime, the purpose low. of the crime is not to get wealth or even sustenance. It's just to get caught. He right. just wants to be caught. <laughs> and because he's so down on the luck, it's hard for him to get caught committing crime. Like whatever his plan is, it's probably not going to work out the way he hopes. Right. <laughs> for the little trip. So it, it definitely is thematically sound that he tries to commit crimes and get caught and can't get caught for a good chunk of the film. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what there is to say about the house, but 
when she goes and gets that house and it's such a contrast again like the, i i think that there really are interesting uh contrasts in this film so the factory that we start in the factory and we end on this like dirt road out in the country um and you see the the billows feeding machine at the beginning and then towards the end you see well sh- her feeding him i mean not not like spoon feeding him but the meal that she prepares for him in the house like a pretty good meal um and she, she kind of winks at him because he knows that she's stolen all of this food, but it's a pretty nice meal. And then again, um, when he's feeding the the, the other worker that is the other worker, the yeah. And there's something that it, it's very um, it's very reminiscent of the of the Billow's feeding machine because he's trying to feed this guy, and it's it's kind of funny because it's hard and he he spills on him. But there's also something really sweet, I think, in in that scene. Right, like there's a yeah there's compared to the cold, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not just that the machine is cold; it's that the, when the machine stops working, the the inventor of the machine keeps testing it, and it gets, keeps going even more wrong. And he doesn't care that Chaplin is getting splashed with more Smack soup and fed, <laughs> you know, fed more nuts, like literally having the nuts and bolts fed to him instead of the food, and uh, the the corn on the cob machine, like just going crazy against his face um like no one cares like no one is thinking about him even though this is a machine to feed a human like literally no one notices that he's he's being pained and inconvenienced by this machine And, and compare that to like the real like you said there's kind of a tenderness in a humanity uh when Chaplin is feeding this other worker who is trapped and wants his lunch yeah I mean I think it's just I I think it's really great filmmaking when you can have two scenes in which the action is almost identical right like i mean uh, you could probably go shot for shot and sort of uh if you broke down these two scenes like there's you know the the coffee and the soup and the and the sandwich and the 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 piece of pie falling on the face like there's so many similarities between these scenes and yet the and and they're both equally like they're both really funny and yet they both have uh, such a different feel. Like one feels so cold and the other feels so warm. And to be able to, uh, I, I, to, to make that contrast in that way, I think is really smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty great stuff. So you have the, the factory at the beginning, the country road at the end. You have the, the feeding thing. You have, well, the, feeding you have thing. the home life in the shack versus the home life in the department store. And the home life in the dream. Right. When they have the dream and there's like, you know, he he pulls the like this. um, The dream is really interesting for the way that nature sort of encroaches on the on the domestic space where like you open a window and there's a piece of fruit right there. And then you open the back door and there's a cow and you milk the cow and eat the grapes at the same time right on your back porch. Um, Which is I I, I think that's kind of interesting. but. but contrast that house with the with the shack and and also the department store um it's pretty great yeah so i mean there's um obviously there's the comparisons that we're seeing or the contrast between uh you know the cold hard factory versus a human touch or nature at the very end right so opening up with these workers marching sheep like into into the factory where they become mechanized almost mm-hmm. like incapable of doing anything other than the simple uh task on the um conveyor belt versus him and uh the, the little tramp in the gammon walking off into nature uh at the end but there's also then the class things where you you see the lower class life versus this department store like this department store right. is this upper middle class fantasy that they are going to go live in for this sequence right mm-hmm. yeah she's and, wrapping herself in the furs and then and sleeping in an actual bed yeah yeah and we see her also again like we see her fall asleep in the shack on the floor mm-hmm. and and then we we see her in the bed is this is the department store before the shack or after the shack <sighs> I think it's. I can't remember because I mean the thing about this film is um, it, the, these feel like chapters that aren't necessarily like building a a through narrative. Like I think of them as the sequences. There's the roller skating sequence in the department store. There's the uh, you know the dance sequence at the restaurant. There's the factory sequence at the beginning. But I don't really like order them in my head. <laughs> yeah. So it's sense? so it's um, dream sequence, 
and then they go straight to the department store. Okay. And then leaving the department store, he goes to jail. And she and finds the shack. And then she right. finds the shack, yeah. Right. But so, I mean, those are all happening pretty close to each other. Yeah. Um, you know, those three. Uh, so uh, even though maybe I, in my head, I'm not keeping these things in the right order, I think Chaplin probably had them in the right order. Yeah. For, <laughs> for what he was doing. This is more on me as a viewer who has seen this many times uh, between film glasses and watching it with my kids and stuff. And I had it on today and maybe wasn't paying as close attention as I should when I was about to have <laughs> a podcast discussion <laughs> on this movie. No, it's fine. I mean, y- you think there's a part of you that wants to say, um, oh, it's just basically the plot is an excuse to have these these different gags right yeah these great which are all again laugh out loud funny for any age like these have aged well these comedic bits but i think when you take a step back there really is a a well-constructed story here and yeah well and it's deliberate it's not it's it's not that it happens to fit together it's oh he's well i I mean just when you contrast that at the, the beginning like these uh dehumanized workers entering a factory space versus the two marching off into their hopes into nature where there's not a sign of a man-made thing. Like there's the dirt road, it's dirt (laughs) versus, um, you know, the, the streets that a lot of the, the scenes take place on and there's, there's the trees everywhere and the sun right there. Um, it makes me think a little bit about, um, Oh, it's, it's a Marx, but not that Marx. (laughs) Yeah. And not the Marx brothers, but there's a, there's maybe Leo (laughs) Marx, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, the machine in the garden about like the, industrial revolution and how it gets reflected in literature and the stories that we're telling and this encroachment of technology becoming more and more prominent in the stories that we're telling each other um, as a natural reflection of the changing society around us. And he he like talks about um, like one of the, the, first great examples of this is in Huckleberry Finn, when you got Huck and Jim floating down this idyllic Edenic river on their raft that they built themselves out of fallen logs and it gets destroyed by a steamboat that comes roaring through, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the the river. Um, and this is like the machine entering the garden, like the paradisiacal garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that this is going to happen more and more in the stories that we're, that we're seeing. And the structure of this film is actually like these two humans rediscovering their humanity and leaving the machinery to the garden, uh, you know, going to the garden. Yeah. Cool. I think it's Leo Marx who wrote The Machine in the Garden. I think so. I have a copy of it somewhere <laughs> yeah. in here. I was looking at my shelf. I was like, oh, man. I know I've got that one. I know somewhere. it's a Marx, but it's not the Marxes you think of when you think of Marx. Yeah. <laughs> so we haven't discussed the, um, the, the cafe and the, dan- mm-hmm. the dancing and the all of that. I mean, it's, in some ways, like the... the the comedy of the scene, you just have to say, go watch it. Cause the way he dances and moves and the way he can hold his body out at weird angles and still seem in complete control. <laughs> like it's worth watching just to see a physical performer do what he does in the dance. Okay. So there is a Mexican comedian. His name is Cantinflas and he, um, he made a load of films. Um, I'm give me one second here. I mean, he made films from uh, early on until late. <laughs> he made a lot of films. Let's see. He had a long, long, long career. Um, let's see. Uh, so filmography. His last film was in 1982. Or 1994. And his first film was in 1937. So right after modern times. Yeah. And he was making films all the way through the 80s. Um, I I will say Chaplin's last film was in the 70s that he made. Like after he left the US, he still made uh, not nearly as prolific as he was in the silent era. But he still made films up through the 70s. The only English English language film that he made is... um, Around the world in eighty days, um, but he's he's very often compared with Chaplin. Um, he's really his physical comedy is great, and his his sort of persona is a street kind of tramp. Um, and he has the he has the, the big pants, and he ties them with a rope, and he's got this um, kind of characteristic uh, 
neckerchief that he that he wears. But um, he has a film that's called El Bolero de Raquel, um, and in that he 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 gets a job um, shining shoes in in a cafe, <clears throat> and then uh, he ends up sort of stumbling onto the stage just as this woman is starting this um this dance and then he engages in a duet with her and it's the closest thing that i can that i can think of to seeing somebody dance like chaplin and it's really good <laughs> i mean cantifles was uh i mean he's 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 amazing he's one of the greatest comedic uh actors of all time and so it, it, anyway if you're inter- if you really like the the cafe scene so here's your other youtube uh assignment listeners if you really like the cafe dancing scene from modern times then you should watch the dancing scene from el bolero de raquel uh with cantinflas it's pretty great all right anything two else spanish, that you think we need to touch two on spanish time? references in today i'm feeling pretty good about this <laughs> see there was the the and portuguese uh, yeah one oh, portuguese, yeah, portuguese yeah you've represented the peninsula well Bonus. <laughs> yeah i'm feeling i'm feeling good about this i got to We've got to go out on a high note. Oh, I was the one thing. I get these references in in our last <laughs> episode. Is there anything Quixote esque about the tramp? <laughs> the little tramp thought. Oh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> Just got to make sure we 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 check all these boxes as we're as we're in our final runway here. Oh, one thing I was going to say, just speaking of the final runway, is um, you listeners may notice that these last um, few films that we discuss or, or last. Uh, Several works that we discuss are going to be a lot of my picks because I feel like <laughs> going out. Uh, there's a few things that I'd like to talk about. So um, thanks for bearing with me on this. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't I don't know that I have anything else. Oh, I'm, pre- I'm pretty happy with what we've been able to cover. And uh, I think we uh, just one more shout out to both. Uh, uh, you know, the, the stars of this, of this movie. Uh, I think everyone knows Chaplin was a pretty amazing, uh, physical comedian. Obviously, if you're operating in the silent era, there's gonna be a lot of physical physicality to your acting and your comedy. But also I think Paulette Goddard is, uh, like I, I, I could not name her works, but based on this, like she, she holds her own with Charlie Chaplin in his last performance as a little tramp. And that says something about her skills as an actress. And she made a lot of films. She, her first film was 1929 and she was acting into the seventies. She's in modern times. She's in the great dictator. Oh, okay. So he kept her around for his next one. Uh, reap the wild wind. Cecil B. DeMille. It's in the women. I that's Cecil. If I may Todd. Cecil. I'm sorry. I did that. I did that one <laughs> last time I said that on this podcast. Uh, and um, she's with Joan Crawford in uh, The Women. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 21, when we talked about I Love Lucy, or episode number 172, was it, Todd? Yep. 172, when we talked about Dick Van Dyke. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can listen or go follow. Sorry, not listen. Go follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan, fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. And it's pronounced gammon. Gammon. Yep. Well, knowledge gained. Synonyms urchin, ragamuffin, waif, stray, or gutter snipe. Gutter snipe is an underused word. Gutter snipe. Yes. It's a gammon that inhabit the alley. Yep. A gammon. Yeah.